The story is told of a zoo that was renowned for its collection of animals from around the globe. Well, one day its prized gorilla died and wanting to keep up appearances, the zookeeper hired a man to play the gorilla while wearing a gorilla suit. Well, it was his first day on the job and, and he wasn't very experienced in acting like a gorilla. And so as he tried to move around the cage more convincingly, he climbed up on some rocks and then he proceeded to fall into the lion enclosure. And so here comes the lion stalking over and all of a sudden the man in the gorilla suit starts screaming desperately because he knows his life is about to end. And finally, the lion gets there and the lion proceeds to whisper, be quiet or you're going to get us both fired. Many would say that, well, this zoo is a lot like the church, full of people pretending to be something they're not. In the history books, Mahatma Gandhi was the man at India's center uh, of India's fight for freedom from the British Empire. Now, Gandhi was raised a Hindu. It was a faith that he confessed throughout his life. Um, but during his travels and his studies, Gandhi had had the opportunity to, to study the Christian faith and to converse with many Christians. And, and Gandhi was deeply intrigued by the Christian Savior. He, he found Jesus profoundly compelling. He would frequently quote from Jesus' teachings, but ultimately he rejected Christianity. And he rejected Christ because primarily he rejected Christians. Gandhi was turned off by hypocrisy, Christian hypocrisy. One time after quoting from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he was asked why he was not a Christian, and he responded, I will become a Christian when I meet one. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Gandhi once told the missionary Stanley Jones, oh, I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike Christ. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. Now, Gandhi's not alone, right? He's got the same problem that so many people have today. And if you ask most people, why do you not go to church? Or why don't you become a Christian? Or why did you leave the faith? One of the most common answers is a variation of this. The church is full of hypocrites. Now, on one level, at least, the charge seems to be true. When Christians turn a faith of redemption and forgiveness as a license to hate others, they're hypocrites. When well-known Christian leaders urge you to, to give generously and sacrificially to support the cause of Christ, and then they pocket that money to buy nicer cars and bigger houses. They're a hypocrite. When Christians judge the sins of others as being worse than their own, they are hypocrites. Right? You, you get the picture. But I have a couple of responses to this charge that the church is just full of hypocrites. First, 
the charge of hypocrisy is not exclusive to the church, right? All sorts of groups of people are full of hypocrites, right? Democrats, a bunch of hypocrites. Republicans, hypocrites there too. When I drive by a hospital and I see a bunch of doctors and nurses outside taking a smoke break, you got it, hypocrites. When an environmental activist flies a private plane that leaves a carbon footprint the size of a coal-fired power plant to just get to a summit to save the planet from fossil fuels, hypocrisy. And I have known and I have had friendships with, with Muslims and Hindus who, well, did things that were hypocritical to the things they claimed to believe. Now, maybe this is where the atheist or agnostic jumps in and says, well, that's why I reject all religions. But when a prominent atheist claimed that you don't have to believe in a God to be good and to be moral, and then these same atheists go out and behave in cruel, inhumane, or immoral ways, is that not hypocrisy? What I'm saying is this, is that hypocrisy is universal to the human condition. We all fail to measure up to the standards that we claim to hold to because we are all sinners. And this is something that Christianity neither denies nor tries to disguise. In fact, it's a basic tenet to our faith, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's one of the first tenets of the gospel. Now, this brings me to my second response to this charge that the church is just full of hypocrites. The fact is that the church is full of sinners, but that doesn't mean that it's full of hypocrites. You see, a hypocrite is someone who, who does things that he claims that he does not do or doesn't do things that he claims that, that he does. Well, people... No Christians, you know, they've got Christians they work with, Christians in their family, you know, and they see that Christian and, and see them sin, and then they point the finger and say, see, hypocrite. Now, if a person claims to be without sin and then goes and sins, then yes, that person is a hypocrite. But to simply know a Christian and that that Christian sins doesn't automatically make them a hypocrite. It makes them a sinner. The church is full of sinners. We're all sinners. And, and most Christians, I mean, every Christian I know will tell you right up front, yeah, I'm a sinner. I blow it every day. Right? Yeah. The church is full of sinners, but that doesn't mean we're all hypocrites. Yes, we're sinners, and we freely admit it. That's, that's why we're here. That's why I'm a Christian. That's why I'm a part of the church. In fact, the church is the only institution I know of where an admission of being a, sim, a, a sinner is a prerequisite to being a member. The church is filled with sinners because, well, the church is the place where sinners go to confess their sins, to find forgiveness, and renewal and restoration from their sins. We're not in the church, hopefully, to pretend to be something we're not. We're here because, well, we're screwed up, and we know we're screwed up. And the Bible teaches that we're all screwed up, every last one of us, and we need someone who's not screwed up to fix us. And who better than the one who made us?
That's Jesus. Jesus is our creator. He was there at creation. He was a part of the us when God said, let us make mankind in our image. The apostle John declares in his gospel, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He is the one. Jesus is the one who's not screwed up, who came to fix all of us who are screwed up. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, says, God made him who had no sin, none, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All right, so Jesus became sin for us so that we could become righteous. Well, this brings us to the whole point of this message, and that is this. Christ is greater than Christians. Christ is greater than Christians. Christianity is based as just, let me try that again. Christianity is best judged on who Jesus is, not on who Christians are. Right? Christians, we're, not, we're nothing but a bunch of messed up sinners. And yes, we're trying to get our lives straightened out. Yes, Jesus is making us better than, than what we are, but we're not there yet. It is all about Jesus and who he is. And so you need to judge the Christian faith, not on the worst of what Christians can be, but on who Jesus is. And let's talk about Jesus and hypocrisy for a moment. Jesus was deeply acquainted with hypocrisy. In fact, our word hypocrisy comes straight out of the ancient Greek language, which Jesus spoke. A Hippocrates, a, a Hippocrates was an actor in Greek drama. And on stage, these actors would use masks to portray different characters. And, and you'd have a single actor who would play multiple characters. And, and the way you could tell which character they were was by which mask they wore. Even to this day, you have those twin masks that represent theater, drama, and tragedy. Well, over time, a Hippocrates came to represent anyone who pretended to be something that they were not. And that's what, that's what a hypocrite is. And when it comes to hypocrisy, you need to know this. Number one, Jesus hates hypocrisy. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't tolerate it. He doesn't wink at it. He abhors it. Right, from the beginning of his ministry all the way to the end, Jesus fought against hypocrisy. In Matthew 6, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed the subject at length, and he warns us not to be hypocrites, not to do spiritual things just so that people will think that we're spiritual. Because before you know it, you're pretending to be something you're not. He says things like this in verse 2. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites, as the Hippocrates do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. He's talking there about the Pharisees, the religious professionals who did their good deeds, not because they loved God or they loved people. They did it because they wanted to be noticed. They wanted to be thought of a certain way, even though in their hearts, they may be despised the poor. They despised the needy. They blamed them. Their problems are their own fault. God is judging them. But I still want everybody to think that I'm generous and I give. 
Verse five, he says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, the Hippocrates, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And so imagine a guy who, who like memorizes his prayer. He chooses the words carefully, right? And then he goes and he recites that prayer in a highly dramatized fashion so that everybody thinks, oh, what a godly person, what a spiritual person, how much they must know God. Then towards the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 23, the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus goes all right, on a tirade against the Pharisees, these religious professionals who were the supreme hypocrites. He calls them blind guides, poisonous snakes, says they're whitewashed tombs, right? They looked really good on the outside, but inside, they're full of rotting death. Now, Jesus hasn't changed, right? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible says he still detests hypocrisy. He still denounces it. It still, I think, arouses his anger wherever he finds it. In fact, Jesus hates hypocrisy more than you do. That's how Jesus thinks about it. The second thing we can say about Jesus when it comes to hypocrisy is that he experienced hypocrisy right, firsthand. He was the victim of hypocrisy. It was something that he endured throughout his earthly ministry all the way up until his death. He knows what it is like. He understands the pain of it, and he grieves with those of us who are hurt by it. Also know that that Jesus saw hypocrisy far more clearly than we do, right? He had an x-ray vision that would make Superman jealous because Jesus could see into the hearts of people, right? He understood their deepest motivations. He understood their desires. He understood the true intentions in every critic, in every attack, in every accusation. Knowing that, we have to remember that when Jesus died on the cross, he also died for the sin of hypocrisy. Number three, Jesus predicted hypocrisy. Our Savior knew that spiritual pretending wasn't just a problem in the first century. In fact, Jesus was quite upfront about the fact that there would never be a pure and perfect church in this world. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a, a parable, right? It's, a, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, and it's a story about a farmer, and we pick up the story in verse 24. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Now, the weeds Jesus is talking about here is a specific kind of weed that, that looks remarkably similar to wheat. Very hard to tell the difference. Now, the farmer's servants in this story, they immediately wanted to go out and pull the weeds. But the farmer says, no, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot, uproot the weed, uh, wheat with them. All right? We don't want to risk the wheat in trying to pull out the weeds. 
Well, the disciples began to noodle on this story, and it kind of perplexed them. So later on, when it was just them and Jesus, they go to Jesus and ask him to explain the story. And Jesus says that Jesus is the farmer who sows the good seed. He says the field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom, all right? So it's the church. And Jesus tells us that the bad seed will be mixed in with the good seed right up until the end of the age. And then it's at that point is when Jesus will purify his church. So the bottom line is this, that there are going to be weeds, right? Hypocrites pretending to be Christians. Uh, and these weeds are going to be in the church throughout earthly history. This brings up an interesting question, though. Why? Why did Jesus choose to do it this way? Why didn't he create a perfect and pure church from the beginning? Why allow all of these weeds to be mixed in there with us? Well, this brings us to number four. And the answer is that Jesus uses hypocrisy. It doesn't mean that Jesus loves hypocrisy or encourages it in any way but he can use it to further his own purposes. He uses these trials to test and prove our own faith. I mean, if we hang on to Jesus and we hang on to our faith, despite all of the, the pain that professing people inflict on us and on others, then it proves our faith is genuine. Hypocrisy can also motivate us to to self-reflection. We examine our own words, our own actions, our own motives. We see how others are blind to their faults, and then that should drive us to our knees. And we pray, Lord, open my eyes. Show me where I am blind. Expose that which I try to keep hidden. Right? So this should encourage us, not discourage us. And the very fact that, that you may be concerned, you know, am I Am I really wheat or am I a weed? Am I, am I genuine in my faith or am I just wearing a mask? That's a sign that your faith is genuine, right? And that you're concerned about other people and are they weed and are they weeds? Um, that's a sign of spiritual life. And Jesus can use these experiences to, to magnify his grace. And when we see that even the most mature believers can still have these areas of hypocrisy in their lives, we marvel at what a gracious Savior he must be to love us and to die for such a messed up people. Number five, Jesus will end hypocrisy. Yes, hypocrisy, hypocrisy has been a part of the church from the very beginning, and it will remain a part of the church until the very end. But a day is coming when Jesus will put an end to all hypocrisy in the church. Right? Jesus will gather up all of the weeds out of his kingdom to be burned. And our struggle with sin will be over. He will end the pain and distress of this present mixed up, messed up state of the church. And we will live perfect and pure in the presence of God forever. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes about how Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and he will cleanse us and make us holy so that one day 
In verse 27, he says, he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Just imagine, all right, a perfect world, a perfect church, a perfect you. It will be the most perfect joy we will ever experience. But if hypocrisy is here to stay for the foreseeable future, what are we to do, right? What's, what's the solution? What are we supposed to do in the meantime? What should be our response when brothers and sisters in Christ disappoint us when they fall short, right? When they hurt us because they use one tape measure for themselves and use a different tape measure for us. What do we do when we hear of yet another Christian leader who's misappropriated ministry funds or gotten involved in some sort of sexual scandal, or he's abused his position of power, or maybe even all three. Well, let me give you some practical guidelines to help navigate this mess of hypocrisy. Number one, try to see Jesus in even the worst Christians. See, none of us are the final product God's not done working on me, and he's not done working on you. You're still growing. I'm still growing. And the same is true of every single person you will ever go to church with. And every follower of Jesus, we should have a tattoo on our heads that says, pardon our mess under construction. Right? I'm a mess. You're a mess. And that's why we need a messiah. Every other Christian, right, no matter how much of a mess they are, I still believe there is a trace of the image of God in them that's still growing. There is still some sign of God's working. Jesus is leaving his fingerprints in their lives somewhere. Right? Look for that. Right? Focus on that. Thank God for that. Encourage that. Try to see Jesus and even the worst of Christians. Number two, be patient. All right, spiritual growth takes time. Overcoming sin takes time. Remember when I was just a teenager, I went to a Christian conference with my parents. And at the beginning of the conference, they passed out these little buttons that had a bunch of letters on them. P-B-P-G-I-N-F-W-M-Y. All right, and we're all putting on these little pins that we don't even know what it means. We found out later in the conference, though, that it means, please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. Well, what a good reminder. All too often, though, we expect others to grow at a much more uh, rapid pace than we expect of ourselves, or we expect others who are behind us spiritually to catch up to us quickly. But Jesus compared uh, his work in our lives to a small lump of leaven. Think of a little bit of yeast that works slowly and gradually to transform an entire batch of dough. It will eventually work its way through the whole batch, but it takes time. We need to be patient. Give God, give the Holy Spirit time to do his work. Number three, uh, pray for them. I, I think this is, is a great response to hypocrisy. 
When we're talking about someone, it is so easy for that talk to become negative. We've all done it. I've done it. You've done it. We've all ripped someone to shreds. Often, usually when they're not around to defend themselves, right? And then guess who's being the hypocrite now? Well, when you start feeling that irresistible urge to start talking about someone and, and you begin to rip and tear at them, well, instead, talk about them in the most constructive way possible. Pray for them. All right now, I'm not talking about that, that thing that Christians sometimes do where we, we share gossip disguised as prayer. You know, dear Lord, I, I pray for Cheryl, and I pray that you would help her overcome her bitter backstabbing. I pray that she would realize you know, how hurtful she was when she said yada, yada, yada. No, not like that, but genuinely pray for them. And yes, you can pray for spiritual growth. You can pray for victory over sin, but thank God for the work that he's already doing in their lives and ask God to bless them. Right? It is hard to be mad at someone when you're praying for God to bless them. And two things happen when you genuinely pray for someone like this. First, it's hard to hate the person you're praying for. It is hard to pull them down when you're lifting them up in prayer. The second thing is this, prayer works. Right? And your prayer may very well affect change in them. Your prayer can bear fruit in their lives. But keep this in mind, prayer sometimes changes others, but prayer almost always changes you. You will get a new perspective on this person, and you will get a new perspective on this problem. Right? You'll see things that you didn't see before. You'll see new ways of approaching the situation. And what you'll find is that often weeds become wheat. Right? Prayer can be transformative in this process. The third way, the third Christ, or number four, I'm sorry, the fourth way that, uh, that we can have a Christ-centered solution to hypocrisy is to speak positively about other Christians. So when we're tempted to start talking about them, first pray for them, and then find ways to build them up, not tear them down. So when you're in a group and someone starts tearing down a brother or sister in Christ, or you're tempted to start ripping into someone, well, instead focus on a part of their life that evidences Christ's work in them. Find some way the Holy Spirit is using them. Yes, I know there are still obvious remnants of Satan's work in them, but why do we want to put the spotlight there? And this isn't just a practical bit of advice. It's a command of Scripture. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. So when the conversation starts to go negative, right, you put a positive spin on it as quickly as you can. Now, listen to me carefully. I'm not saying that we ignore sin or we sweep it under the rug. There are certainly things that have to be addressed. Sin needs to be confronted. But we don't want to put the focus on what's wrong with people. We don't want the focus to be on the worst of Christians. We want the focus to be on what's right with Jesus. Number five, and this is the, the, the last Christ-centered solution to hypocrisy, and this is where it gets personal, but this is also where real life change happens. See your own faults in them 
it's amazing how we can be especially hard on people who, who have the same failings that we do, you know, and, and people who, who mess up in the same ways we do, they can particularly annoy us. And have you ever listened to a, a brother or sister in Christ rip into to someone else in the church and, and you want to tell them, hello, pot, meet kettle, you know? Well, I think we do this because it makes us feel better about ourselves. If I can find someone who's even worse in some area than I am, then I must not be so bad. But this is where so many of the accusations of hypocrisy come from. Now, ladies, most ladies have something in, in their bathroom. Um, and, and I don't know why they use this. It, it's called, I believe, a magnifying makeup mirror, right? It's a, a, a mirror on a curved surface that blows up everything to like 10 times its normal size. And even worse, a lot of these mirrors had these like bright lights that go around the outside. So it makes it look 10 times worse. So that, that tiny little pimple looks like the Kilauea volcano. That little wrinkle looks like the Grand Canyon. Um, you know, and the few times that I've looked into them, I'm like, man, ladies, why do you do this to yourself? Well, I know why, and you know why. It's so that you can see exactly what you're doing when you're uh, putting on mascara or makeup or, or whatever. You need to be able to see those flaws in your face carefully so you can, well, I guess make them up the way that you want to. Uh, but I certainly don't want to use them because, I mean, I look into those things and even the best part of my face looks like the lunar landscape. I'm afraid if I turn on the radio, I'm going to hear Houston Tranquility Base here. The eagle has landed. I want you to consider something that maybe you've never thought of before. What if God sent that hypocrite, that other person whose failings and shortcomings annoy you so much? What if God sent them as a magnifying mirror for your own sins? What if God is trying to show you yourself through them? It doesn't make any sense to attack the mirror for what it shows on your face. So use them to see what's wrong with you more clearly and then do something about it. And this is the one response to hypocrisy that Jesus specifically teaches us. In Matthew 7, uh, Jesus, this is the famous judge not that you be not be judged passage. Right, people love to quote that verse, but they just stop there. They don't go on. But this passage has nothing to do with ignoring sin or minding your own business. The bottom line is this. Judge yourself first, then you can help someone else. All right, so look in the mirror and make sure you're free from any of that kind of sin yourself before you ever point it out in someone else. Here's what Jesus says there in Matthew 7. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, you want to deal with hypocrisy? You want to get rid of hypocrisy in the church? Well, the two best ways to do it is, first of all, look to Jesus first. Put your focus 
on the Savior. And then secondly, look to your own sins and deal with your own sins before you ever look to the sins of others. And I tell you, if, if all Christians made that a goal, look to Jesus first and then look to my own sins second, you'd see the problem of hypocrisy would just mostly disappear from the church. Now, it'll never be gone entirely, not until our Savior returns and we struggle with sin no more. But that's the solution. That's the answer to hypocrisy. And I want you to know that Christ, he's greater than Christians. Put the focus on him.